Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I'm going to read you John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Now there's in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude. Do you know, do you know how many that is? A Greek word, multitude? It's a lot of people. Hundreds upon hundreds of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This spot, the pool of Bethesda, um, some of your translations will have a little note that says house of mercy. Um, others, based on the spelling of the word and which manuscript they're looking at, will say house of outpouring. We know when we read uh, John chapter 5 that it ends up becoming an outpouring of God's mercy. But what, what's happening here, and this is a spot that some of you have traveled with us to the Holy Land, some of you are going to go with us when we go to uh, the Holy Land in June. This is a place that we go to. It's not very far from the temple. And what's happening in John chapter 5 and verse 1 is there's a celebration. It's a feast. We don't know which feast it is. Uh, but this would be like when you get a Christmas break and everybody's off work and all the normal people are at the temple and they're celebrating. They're singing songs. They're having a good time. And Jesus leaves the celebration and he comes over to this place where if you wanted to remain clean, you weren't there. I'm not sure if the Pharisees were actually there at this spot when you read the story. And he comes to where there's a multitude of invalids and blind and paralyzed. These pools are two pools. There's five colonnades. Uh, the place wasn't discovered until the 19th century. So skeptics used to say, well, see, the Bible just is not even, it's making places up. And then God proves to be true as time goes on. There's these five colonnades there and these two large pools, hundreds of feet wide. People all over the place. And then Jesus enters in from the celebration. He comes into their sickness and their suffering. And Southbridge, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, we live in a world of sickness and suffering. I don't know what your own personal experience has been. Maybe life's never been going better for you. That's great. We love that. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, but there's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of difficulty. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's an election uh, next week on Tuesday. Uh, there's like a couple signs out on the road. I don't know if you've seen that. Does that work? Is anybody voting based on a name? Anyway, um, my 11-year-old daughter even came up to me. She can't vote, by the way. Uh, and to my knowledge, had no interest in politics until a couple weeks ago. She came up and she's like, is Ted Bud good? Like, well, according to my text messages, you know, it's Sherry Beasley good? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm just getting all these things. So... Some of you are thinking about those things, and, and the problem is when you listen to politicians speak, they come out and they'll tell you a problem, and they say, if you elect me, here's how I'm going to solve the problem, and they try to communicate to us, and so a lot of us have been hearing this, what are the biggest issues of the day? And I was reading a new source, I was trying to find a neutral one to see what do they say, not what does the other side say about this side, what do they say? And so I looked at like NPR and Reuters, some of these different places, and I was like, what do they say each side says is the most important topic? And so the general consensus is, is that they say most uh, people believe the conservatives, uh, the Republicans, are saying that the most important topic is the economy, okay? And they argue about the inflation and, you know, inflation, I don't know. If some of you, I, didn't, I wasn't even that interested in math, so maybe that's my problem, um, but they say that the inflation rate is at 8%. I don't know how that's true and everything costs 40% more, so if somebody could explain that to me, I seriously am interested. Um, 
And they say that the Democrats say that the, the, the number one issue is the integrity of democracy, that election wouldn't be compromised or questioned and some of those pieces. And I think democracy matters. And if you're in debt because you're you know, paying for gas to get to work, that's not good. I'm not trying to minimize that. But I think the very fact that we think those are our biggest problems shows us we have a problem. We are in a world of real legitimate sickness and suffering. Like imagine, imagine with me for a minute, <laughs> like we know that things can change in just a moment's time based on what happened with the pandemic. Imagine that the water gets poisoned in the southeast, that's us, <laughs> and everybody dies in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Florida alone is 22 million people. Do you think we'd be talking about the economy or an election? I hope not. It's about 60 million people, about 62, 63 million people, depends on which website you look at for population. Uh, that's still less than have been aborted since Roe v. Wade, which was 64 million. And we're using that as a conversation about whether that's okay or not. That's a problem. We are sick and we are suffering. And I could talk to you about world problems, but the reality is that most of us, when we hear these, we, they don't even seem real to us. A thousand people will die while we meet together today because of hunger and hunger-related diseases because we have a poverty problem. Now, not in North Carolina. If you all want, right now, you can pretend like you're looking up a verse and order Grubhub to your front door so that it gets there before you get there. But there are people that are dying because of hunger and hunger-related diseases all around the world. We live in a world of sickness and suffering. You want to drive it home? Uh, we have a mental health crisis. 90% of Americans agree with that statement, that we are living currently in a mental health crisis. Uh, in one survey, 50% of people said that either they themselves or someone in their immediate family is currently seeking help, one-on-one -on -one individual counseling therapy for self-harm. They're doing things they know they're hurting themselves. We are sick and suffering. Uh, we are not in one of the poorest states in our country, North Carolina. We get a little bit more personal, talk about global issue, talk about an American issue. Here's a North Carolina issue. Um, many clinicians believe that the third wave of the pandemic is a mental health crisis for our youth. So we can talk about some statistics there of feeling hopeless and anxiety and depression and the different pieces that are happening there. But North Carolina, did you know that we are 42nd in the 50 states, we are 42nd in resources and help for our youth. We are not 42nd in wealth, but it's just not an important issue to us. We're sick and suffering. I've read one, I know we have several doctors uh, from Duke that attend our church. I've not met this gentleman, so he might be a colleague of yours. You may attend our church, I didn't know that, but I, I read a quote by, it'll be on the screen, Dr. Gary Maslow. He's a child psychiatrist at Duke University this week, and this is, makes it more personal than a number to me. He says, in March, I was rounding in the hospital. I've been at Duke for a decade and never experienced the number of children or young adults coming in with serious suicide attempts. He went on to say, what we might see in three months or a year, we saw in a week. The church is sick too. 38% um, of pastors are considering quitting because of burnout. Can you imagine if 40% of churches, their pastors quit? A bunch of them are not strong enough to continue to go. Our church, I believe, is, but a lot of churches are not strong enough to even continue to keep their doors open without their pastor. Hmm. We are sick and suffering. 
And we can go on. We can talk about there a lot. There, I could just do the issues that are going on in our world through this whole service and just give you statistics the entire time. But just like feel out what's happening and the things that we're talking about as the major problems. I don't want to minimize those. But like if you have credit card debt because you're buying gas, but you show up and there's a murder scene and 60 million people are dead, it's kind of like going, I got a cramp in my calf. It matters, but not right now. We've got, you know, such selective social justice, if you want to get a commentary on what's happening in our world. Racism, wrong. Always condemn racism. Refugee, shoot, that's a big deal. But it's interesting to me that these things are serious topics and been serious problems for a long time, but they pop up when they can get votes. Or get you, and then you think, like, then we start thinking, because we jump on these trains, like, I tweeted something, and you got a bunch of likes. Like, what about when you talk about stuff that's not popular? And why in America is sexual sin so sacred? Like, we, that should be a sign. We're sick. We're suffering. You don't mess with that. You want to you see being not popular? Talk about the gender issues and say what the Bible says. Talk about homosexuality. Tell somebody that adultery, adultery itself, like people that aren't married having sex is sin. According to the Bible, you will get canceled. You are a hate monger. Much less like same-sex marriage. Whoa. Hey, some of y'all want to leave right now just because I said that. That's a, that's, that means we are sick and we are suffering. There's a lot of bad news. You want some good news today? Good news is this, that Jesus is the great physician. And he will leave the celebration and he will enter into the sickness and suffering. And that I don't know all your stories, but I know this is true about who he is and what he does in our lives, so I know it's true for your life. Is that the great physician has perfectly positioned you for restoration or to point other people to real restoration, which is what these miracles do. Jesus doesn't do this miracle. There's hundreds and hundreds of people there. And sometimes people are like, and he only chose this one guy. Well, in John chapter 6 and verse 2, it says he healed a whole bunch of people. So we don't know if it was there, but somewhere else. We don't know all that's happened because John doesn't tell us that. And he tells us in his book, I'm not telling you everything that happened. I'm just telling you this stuff so that your life can be radically transformed, that you would see these signs, and they would then point you to Jesus Christ and who he truly is, and that you would have life, and that life would change you. Amen? That's the whole point of the book. Uh, John only actually records seven what he calls signs, what oftentimes we would call miracles. And so why these seven? Why not all these others? Well, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 5, if you haven't gotten there already, if you've got an app, you can pull it up. If you have the Southbridge app, it's in there. Uh, there's a Bible in there as well. And if you want a hard copy, we've got those. We give out two. But what's happened is in John chapter 2 and verse 24, Jesus said he doesn't trust himself to people because he knows what's in the hearts of people, man and woman. In John chapter 3, there's a man, religious elite man, high, everything everybody wants to be. You'd want him to come to your parties. And Jesus tells him he must. This is an option. You must be born again. You've got to start over. That's hard to hear when you're somebody who's worked your whole life to get to a certain spot where you hope you get favor from God because you've worked so hard. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. It's a new beginning. Sounds great if life has been really rough. It hasn't been rough for him, but Jesus knows that. Then he sees a woman in John chapter 4, and life has been rough for her. She's in isolation. She's in shame. And Jesus says to her, I'll give you Something that'll quench what's been going on, the emptiness in your heart. Like St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find rest in him. He says, I'll give you a drink of living water. It'll well up in you to eternal life. 
And then a lot happens between John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. We know that. We don't have time to get into that today, but uh, you can look that up on your own. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see a lot of events. But in John chapter 5, John chose to write this encounter that we just watched. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast it is. Not important to know. They're just celebrating. And Jesus went up to, and if you go to to Israel with us, we'll tell you why, but every time you see it in the Bible, Jerusalem doesn't matter what direction, what's your elevation, it's always up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. This is a gate where they sold sheep. They traded sheep outside the gate before you'd go into the temple to make your sacrifices outside the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man, so now we're zooming in, was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Have you prayed for anything for 38 years? Maybe the salvation, a spouse, cure to a disease, 38. Many people didn't even live to be 38 in this time, by the way. That's a 1984. Some of you are like, no, not me. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew, so Jesus already knew, verse six, knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Seems like an odd question. But look at the man's answer. It's a yes or no question. He says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Here we have a healing miracle. Approximately one-fifth of the gospel narratives are healing miracles, and we don't have all the healings that took place. And so sometimes people are like, what about this? And how come we didn't heal? And, and sometimes we miss that, like, Jesus, even when Jesus began his ministry, he begins with healing miracles. Like, you look at Matthew chapter 4. It's the beginning of his ministry. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I was reading a website this week. Pray for the author of the website. Why doesn't God ever heal amputees? Every disease, every affliction. I want to see that story. If you saw that story, then would you believe? That's my question. Probably not. Not only does Jesus heal, uh, Luke chapter 9, he says this. Luke chapter 9 is a great uh, passage of scripture. There's a lot of content in it. He says, and he called the 12 together gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So even Judas. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now this is interesting um, because we live in a world of sickness and suffering and what oftentimes we'll do in a church service is I'll read you about John chapter five, we'll rejoice that you know, 2,000 years ago some guy, we don't know his name, <laughs> out of hundreds and hundreds of people that were sitting at this pool, awesome that he got healed. Then we walk away with our own sin and suffering and sickness and go, too bad God doesn't do that anymore. About, oh, six or so weeks ago, somebody handed me this note after a service. A woman in our church, she prays very faithfully for this entire room before you enter it. She wrote, respectfully, is it time for a healing service? There's so much illness, pain, sorrow, but there is so much more power and mercy of God. She signed it. If you don't sign it, throw it away, just so you know. But she signed it. Somebody gave me an anonymous note. Yeah, pass that along. <laughs> She's right, and today's the day. So some of you are new to the church, and you're like, oh boy, we liked you. It's about to get weird. 
I remember the first church I went to after I became a Christian, they were great people. I'm super thankful for them and the influence they've had in my, my spiritual growth. But they taught as a church, it was part of their theology that God did really do this 2,000 years ago. He doesn't work like that anymore, which is okay, I guess. But what happened to my spiritual journey is uh, when I needed a healing, I didn't give a crap about what the church believed. What does the Bible say? That's what I was asking. My wife's diagnosed with HIV. I've shared that story with some of you before. And uh, James chapter 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then James chapter 5, it says this, and this is what we're going to do today at the end of the service, just so you know. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. And so we believe that God, not just because my wife was healed, not just because we read about this guy in John chapter 5 or lots of healings in the Bible, but we just believe that Jesus is the great physician and he heals people. And so we're not trying to work you up into some frenzy. You don't have to come up here. I'm not going to poke you in the chest and make you fall over or any of that kind of stuff. But if you're sick and suffering, whether it's physical, your marriage, relational, and you want prayer, we're going to, we're going to offer that at the end of the service because we believe that God still does that, amen? Because of who he is. And so that's our first point is who he is. We're going to talk about, we're talking about in this series, who is the chosen one? The chosen one, you see that circle in our logo, has chosen you. And what does that mean to be chosen by him? Those are our two points today. The first one is who the chosen one is. It's Jesus. The chosen one is the great physician. The chosen one, Jesus, is the great physician. I mentioned to you that in the Gospel of John, uh, John only records seven miracles. He calls them signs. Do you think about what a sign is and why he might use that language rather than calling it a miracle? A sign is not a destination. A sign is a pointer to a destination. So some of you rotely drove here today. You just knew. You just know how to get muscle memory, you know how to get to church. But some of you use signs. Some of you use GPS. Some of you saw, you know, you're coming up 540 and you saw the Leesville exit seven. And there's a McDonald's there. And there's a backyard burger and Dunkin' Donuts, and like whatever the stuff was there. And you didn't stop at the sign and go, hey, can I get a Big Mac? Can I have a coffee, donuts? We give those here, so I guess you probably didn't go to Dunkin' Donuts. Sorry, Dunkin' Donuts, we love you. Because the sign isn't the destination. It's pointing you to the place. This miracle that we see here is not about this miracle. It points us to a destination. The destination is Jesus. I quoted it for you earlier, and we said it throughout the the series, but it's John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. John, the guy who's writing this, is one of the disciples. It's not written in this book. I didn't write them all down. But these are written, this is what the sign points to, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Each one of these signs points us to something different than we need to know about Jesus. This one here, we see he's the great physician. You think about what physicians do. They diagnose. They know what the problems are. And they they don't want to just, good doctors, they don't want to just give you like, hey, take two of these, call me later. Hopefully it deals with your symptoms. No, they want to get to the root causes of what's going on. We saw in uh, Matthew 9 when we were there, and it's also in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, the, the party that Jesus went to at Matthew's house. For some reason, the Pharisees knew Jesus was there. I don't know if they heard the 
<laughs> and they were like, what's going on in that house? Hey, what's Jesus doing under there? Like, I don't know, but they knew. So I don't know if they're just like peeking in windows. I don't know. I don't know all that. But somehow they knew Jesus was in there. They were upset. And they say to Jesus' disciples, why does he, I'm not talking to him, which is oftentimes how religious people do stuff. I'm not talking to him. I'm talking about him. It's called gossip. Why is he with these, with sinners, with these kinds of people? But then Jesus, let's talk eye to eye. Jesus steps in and he answers. You know what he says? Mark chapter 2, verse 17. When Jesus heard it, <laughs> them talking about him, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here you've got this guy in John chapter 5 who's been sick for 38 years. You think he knows he's got a problem? <laughs> he knows. Everybody around him, invalids, blind, lame, every kind of illness, every kind of disease is here. Jesus comes in for him. Something about being a physician and being the great physician. It's a dirty job. It's a difficult job. Being God. We see that when we read this passage. A lot of times we only think about it from our perspective. It's the dirtiest job you ever had. Think about that for a second. We had, um, I guess we're supposed to do it every few years, but we've lived in our house for about 12 years and we finally had our septic system cleaned <laughs> this past year. I had one friend tell me that he's got a, a buddy that owns one of those places and said it'll get sprayed in his face. He's like, if you haven't tasted it, you're not working. I'll just pay you. That is not a do-it-yourself project. <laughs> but I've had dirty jobs, you know, work, you know, kitchens and different difficult spots. And what about you? You think about it. I have one friend who attends our church. Um, at one time, his job was, and think about how hard and dirty this is, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, he was cleaning up crime scenes. So replacing drywall and carpet and some of those things. It's, Jesus leaves the celebration. He comes into the sickness. He knew the man, everybody could see the guy couldn't walk. The word that's used here for new is a divine knowledge. It's interesting here. He's not just dealing with this guy's physical problem. We'll read later in verse 14 of this passage that Jesus goes to the man who doesn't even know who Jesus is, talking to the Pharisees, trying just not to get excluded. He's the opposite. He's the contrast of the guy in John chapter 9, by the way. John chapter 9, we're told that the guy in John chapter 9, his disease, his problem is not because of anybody's sin. He just lives in a sin-broken world, and God's going to glorify himself. But this guy, it's probably because of his sin that God has punished him. That's why he hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Because in verse 14, Jesus goes to him and says, stop sinning, present tense, like you're doing it, you've been doing it, you keep doing it, or something worse will happen. Worse than 38 years of not being able to walk? Something worse will happen to you. Jesus knew this man's real issue is using the physical to get to the spiritual. And if you're a doctor and you know the real issue and you don't tell somebody, that's called malpractice. I was reading, I read a story, I don't know if you've heard of this one or not, but um, there was a guy, he was in Michigan, which is where I was born and raised, um, Dr. Fata, F-A-T-A. It's one of the largest malpractice situations that's ever happened in our country. Uh, he was charged with uh, over $34 million of um, scamming his patients because what would happen is people would come in with medical conditions and he'd tell them that they needed chemotherapy, they had cancer when they did not. 
So some of you have been through um, chemotherapy. You know how terrible that is. One guy lost all of his teeth, and he twitches all the time now. And he was talking about that as a result of what Dr. Fatah had done to him. Uh, one woman um, who was commenting on this case, she said this. She said, it is the, uh, there's a prosecuting attorney. She said, it is the most egregious fraudster in the history of the country, calling him more egregious than Bernie Madoff. Hmm. I think she's wrong. It's more fraudulent that across this country there will be lots of people that are sick and suffering, they're looking for help, and they won't even be told that the root issue is sin. And we talk about physical disease and we always want to be quick to be like, well, it's not because of that because we don't want you to blame God like he's punishing. It's like, well, in the Bible, in the Bible, sometimes it's not because of your sin. So I'm not saying if you're sick, if you have cancer, that it is because of that. But it might be here, Acts 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit, boom, they're dead. Well, thankful God doesn't do that every time for my own sake. <laughs> and nobody be here, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's a passage that talks about the Lord's Supper and Paul warns them to think about your sin because there's people among you, he says, that are sick and that have died because they took communion without taking their sin seriously. Okay, so we know that sometimes that is the reason. I read you the James 5 passage and it said in there, was in the context of talking about sickness, it says, and confess your sins to one another. Why? Why is it talking about that? That's the root issue. And the sign, the sign that this is pointing to is, it's God's pulling back. He's saying the things, all the stuff that came to this world because of the curse, I'm going to remove. It's a pointer to a time that is coming. Revelation chapter 21. And God will be with them and he will be their God and they will be his people and he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And there'll be no more sickness and no more pain and no more sin for the ones that are with him. But did you get the signs? Did you get all the pointers that point to him? In the meantime, have you turned to him? Because he's, he's the great physician. He is the one that heals the diseases. And he knows what your sin, what your suffering, what your sickness is. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Psalm 139. Listen to this. Talking about God's knowledge of us. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Is that physical distance? Is that time? Yep. You search out my path, my lying down, and, my, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He's the great physician, Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. And in the context of that, he's not talking about physical healing. Talking about real wholeness. Some of you will be physically healed today. That is incredible. Some of you will not. But wholeness is offered to everyone. What about the ones that are not? God says he only gives good gifts. For you in this season, in this time, it's terrible. It's momentary. There's a greater glory awaiting. And the healings that do happen, those people are still going to die of sickness, of disease. But what happened is a pointer to him, the great physician. What is he pointing us to? Restoration. For this man, we see the restoration of his legs, and there are a lot of questions at the end of this passage about the rest. Because this guy was still in his sin when Jesus came to him. That tells us something about Jesus. After Jesus heals him, he does not appear to be loyal to Jesus. He's got some character issues, but Jesus came to him. The chosen one, 
is the great physician. And the great physician, the chosen one, has chosen you for restoration. He's chosen you for restoration. Did you see the question that he asked in verse 6? It's a significant question. It seems silly at first. There is no verse 4. Verse 4 explains, um, it was probably inserted by some scribes. Uh, you might have noticed that. I just got to mention it. Um, just I see it here and realize 3, 5, and nobody said, hey, verse 4. Um, the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 4. King James inserted verse 4. It talks about the superstition. So the sadness of the people that are at this is not just that they're invalid and they're blind, but their hope is actually in uh, false hope, which is what's happening to us when we think, if this guy just got elected or this lady just got elected, it's like false hope. If I just could get my bills paid off, false hope. And it's not that those aren't important things. It's just in light of eternity, there are bigger issues. And Jesus is pointing us to the bigger issues. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Well, Jesus, doesn't the fact that he's been coming to this place for like 38 years imply he wants to be healed? Have you ever asked, I've asked dumb questions before. I try not to. I think I've learned some of my, not all of them, I've learned some things. You don't walk into somebody's hospital room, how you doing? Tubes are... Great, Pastor. <laughs> you see somebody with a flat tire, don't ask them how their day's going. When are you due? Never a good question. Never, never. <laughs> Trust me. This seems, this seems like a dumb question. It's not a dumb question because of who's asking it. See, Jesus only asks questions that match his capabilities. If you were sick in the hospital and I walked in and I said, Do you want to be healed? Uh, Probably yes. Great. <laughs> what am I going to do? Anybody gets healed here today? It's not the pastor. It's not the elder. It's not who prayed for you. God heals people. Jesus is God. He's make, it's like when he talks to the woman at the well. Can I have a drink? Well, you don't even have a bucket. He says, if you knew who was asking you, you'd ask me, and I give you living water. See, we stay at the earthly level. We miss sometimes what's happening through the earthly level at the spiritual level. When Jesus is asking questions, he's asking questions that point to his capabilities. And here he asks a question that matches his capability, but this guy, didn't even have, it's not even crossed his mind who Jesus might be and that he's actually not just asking about what he wants, he's geeking, giving him an offer. Are you sick? Are you suffering? Do you want healing? But the very fact that Jesus asked the question, we've got to ask the question, did the guy not want healing? I mean, you look at his answers. He doesn't say yes or no. He makes excuses. He says, when Jesus saw him lying there, he, he asked him, do you want to be healed or made well? Some of your translations say, it says, the sick man, we don't even have his name, the sick man answered him, sir, respectful, I have no one to put me into the pool. That's another commentary on his state of life. He's in isolation, which we know from reading other places in the Bible, just because you couldn't walk didn't mean you didn't have friends. Remember Mark chapter 2? There's a guy who's got four friends that love him so much, they're not going to let anything stop them from getting him to Jesus. They commit a misdemeanor. They rip the ceiling open while Jesus is teaching. They drop this guy before him, and then it says Jesus saw their faith. He had some friends. This guy doesn't have anybody. No one will help me. The way the chosen said it was, you going to help me get to the water? Jesus knows there's no hope in that water. Talk about this water. Another thing for you to look at, those of you like started the Bible on your own, is the Jesus' relationship with water in the Gospel of John, walking on it, turning it to wine, <laughs> living water, and then here, this false hope water, and then Jesus is going right here. So I have no one to put me in, the pool. And, and then think about this superstition that they believe. 
they basically believe the winner of these Olympics of disabled people that are blind, that their legs don't work, they've lost control of their bowels, they're climbing over each other. Talk about Jesus entering into the mess, a dirty job. The first one in is who the deity will reward. That's not how God works. Oftentimes we think that. If no one to put me into the pool and when the water stirred up and I go down, maybe it's the, the, the blind people can still walk, apparently, and some of the lepers, their legs still function. Somebody else beats me in, he says. Now, I don't know his tone. I don't know if this is like sad. I'm all alone and I don't even want to try. I can't get in there. He's like whiny. Well, no one will help me. I want to do it. Somebody else beats me. He's like, guy jumps off the third thing. I don't know. But is it possible he actually doesn't want to be healed? And you think about that. Of course, wouldn't anybody who's sick would want to be healed? 38 years is a long time. He probably doesn't know what it's like to even not be in the condition he's in. One of the most powerful things that stops many of us from experiencing the life God has for us is the fear of the unknown. I heard a, a story an Arab chief tells, and he tells a story about a guy who was arrested as a spy, condemned to death. Persian king would give a, a strange custom for the, all of his prisoners. And the Persian king said to the spy, he said, do you want to go to the firing squad or would you like to go behind the big black door? The guy waited. So there was a long break, the Arab chief says. And he says, uh, the guy chose the firing squad. And when you heard the rifles firing, you knew what had happened. And the Persian king turned to his aide and he said, they always pick the firing squad. People always go with what they know. And the aide said, well, what's behind the big black door? And he said, freedom. But I've known few men brave enough to experience it. Hmm. Fear of the unknown is powerful. Maybe this guy was afraid to be healed. Maybe he counted the cost of what healing would mean for him. One historian I read this week said, you can make a lot of money being a beggar in this time. It's true now in some places. That's why you'll see so many folks doing it. Some people have a genuine need. Some people, I'm not going to get a job. I make more money doing this. There's a cost associated with it. Some of you know that. Some people get used to being in their chaos. I've shared with our church before, about 10 years ago, struggling with um, almost debilitating um, case of anxiety and meeting regularly with one of our elders just to kind of see if I could even keep preaching. And, and we got in this, this pattern of, well, we'd meet and then I'd tell them all the crazy stuff that was going on in my heart and in my mind. And, and it was like two times we met and I didn't talk about any drama. And I said to him, hey, I'm sorry, I don't really have anything to talk about. And he was like, no, that's good. But then I realized, like, that was, a, that was a transforming moment for me because I realized, oh, yeah, I've gotten used to the chaos. So I just function in it. Some of you think that your difficulty is your identity. If you're a follower of Christ, your identity is in Christ, not in your circumstances. Same as I'll sometimes say, is you're not what you do, your job. You're who you are, who God's made you, a child of the King. Well, the same thing is true with your difficulty. But some of us, we get so used to our cancer, our depression, our disease, our broken marriage. And that's kind of, that's how are we going to even relate? Every time I talk to these people, I ask them to pray about this thing. What if that thing ever went away? I wouldn't even have anything to talk about. That might be what the case is for this guy. Do you want to be healed? 
implied is that Jesus can heal him, but maybe I'm looking at this wrong because the text doesn't say that that's true, which is possible of why Jesus asked that question, but maybe, maybe we're missing here. This guy's been faithful for 38 years. Perhaps the angle to look at this story is that this guy's been going through a process because none of us would have blamed him if one day he woke up and was like, you know what, I've been going there for 30 years, 30 years, and nothing happens, and I don't have any help, and even if I sit right next to somebody beats me in, I'm, not, I'm sleeping in today. What if he had missed that day? He quit one day too soon. And you go through the Bible, and, and we live in this, like, like I said, you could order Grubhub and have it at your porch by the time you get home from church today. Like, we can just get everything done on this little device in our pocket. Like, it's just crazy. And then this idea that, like, you go to the gym two times and you haven't lost 10 pounds. It's like, what's wrong? This doesn't work. Have you been to therapy? Have you ever been to therapy of any kind? Any kind of, I don't care if it's like counseling, uh, physical therapy, you're going through some kind of, you know, chemotherapy, like any kind of therapy you go through, it's a process. And you read the Bible and God's continually taking people through a process. And then we as Christians, we're like, ah, God doesn't do the miraculous anymore. Maybe we missed the miraculous because we skipped the process. So you see people in the Bible. Joseph has these dreams. He's super arrogant though. God's got to take him through a process to humble him. It's a long process. Read it. It takes up a good portion of the book of Genesis. You see David. David's probably my favorite. He gets picked to be the king, but it's going to be a long time before he gets to be the king. Then he steps up. He's like, this is my moment. I'm going to fight Goliath. And what does Saul say to him? Saul says to him, you're just a boy. Read it. First Samuel. What are you going to do? And do you know what David defaults to? The process he's been through up to that point. Hey, when I was alone out there with those sheep and a bear or a lion came, I killed the bear or the lion. This giant, he'll be just like that bear or lion. God's going to deliver him into my hands. He's learning to trust the Lord. He said, and uh, when they got away, I chased him down, grabbed him by the beard, and I killed him. So I'm going to kill him because I fought a bear and a lion. You look at Gideon. When he gets called to be a military victor, he's on the threshing floor. He's threshing wheat. Peter, when he's called, it's after an unsuccessful day of fishing. (laughs) Moses, you think, I tried helping people once. I'm never doing that again. The backside of the desert in a burning bush. It's like after your faithfulness, even after your failure, and God, show, you keep going. Some of you, I've been fighting enough lions, enough bears, I'm done. One more day. Just one more day. Who knows when God's going to... 30 years, we'd have been like, you're good, man. Just stay home. Just stay in bed. But then 32, 38 years, and Jesus comes walking into this man's life. He didn't go pursuing Jesus like the woman with blood. Jesus came after him. Not because he cleaned up his act, he's still in his sin. And Jesus still heals his legs. Because you, you look what happens in this passage is that, that it's the power of God's word that transforms this man's life. The same words that said to Lazarus, come out of the tomb, that spoke everything into existence out of nothing, Jesus says. The sick man answered Jesus, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool with the water stirred up while I'm going in, another one steps down in front of me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, took up his bed and he walked. So some of you are in the medical field. Imagine how atrophied muscles are after 38 years. Some of you have a certain neural pathway you've developed in your life about thinking about yourself, about God, about other people. God can change that like this. 
I don't know if this guy had like big calf muscles and a high vertical like the Bible didn't say, but he didn't have any muscles and now he has muscles. Your marriage, your mental health, it's possible. Later in the passage, Jesus keeps coming. They ask the man, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. He disappeared in the crowd. Imagine all the people being like, whoa, over here. I need some help. Jesus goes into the crowd. There was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him. So Jesus came to him. Again, he keeps coming. God's coming for you. I don't know if he's doing it through your pain and your suffering. Other people's, he's coming. But I'm already saved. He keeps coming. He keeps pursuing Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, physically well now. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's worse than 38 years is eternal punishment. What's being pointed to is the great physician and heal stuff now to point you to what will be then. Revelation 21, I mentioned to you already in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Oftentimes, we always pray and the service, y'all go figure that out. Today's application, what we're gonna do is what I mentioned to you at the beginning of this message, James chapter five, is we're gonna give you an opportunity if you wanna be prayed for, for healing, whether that's your anxiety and depression, whether that's your marriage, whether that's cancer. If you aren't able to walk and got brought in here, somebody can bring you to the places, but we're gonna have people at different spots, about eight different places. If you need somebody to come to you, raise your hand, I'll come over to you and pray for you. If you're watching online, if you're close enough to the campus, I encourage you to come up here but there's a number on your screen. If you want someone to pray for you, you text that number and we'll get in contact with you directly. But uh, James chapter five, I'll just read it to you again. It says this, is anyone among you suffering? We're in a world of suffering. Let him pray. Doesn't mean that medical help's not helpful. You know, there's a reason why. First Timothy chapter five, Paul tells Timothy, drink some wine. It's good for your stomach and your frequent illness. So apparently Timothy had frequent illnesses. You could have get medical attention. God uses that. He also uses prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we have some oil. Don't do anything weird. Just put it on your forehead and pray. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. If you have sin to confess, people will listen to your sins. If you want to do that with someone... In, in the seats before you come up. You can do that. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and working. And then James goes into an analogy. Talks about some miraculous prayers that were answered and the people who prayed them were just normal people. People that are going to be at these prayer stations. You can see some leaders and pastors and elders kind of go into those spots now. They'll be at the end basically of the aisles. And so we'll have four people kind of across the front, male and female, uh, will be there. Deacons and elders and prayer warriors uh, are going to be available and we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song and if you want prayer, like I said it can be for anything, you can share what it is, you don't have to share what it is because God's the one that's doing the healing, he knows but if you want believers to carry that burden with you we can do that, you want them to pray specific we can do that, 
we don't need to pray like, God, if you want to heal, then do it. But if you don't, okay. He can, he will. When he wants to use that to point somebody to himself. And so we're just gonna pray that that would happen. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna stand up. The worship is gonna lead us in some singing. If you want prayer, I encourage you to go to somebody for prayer today. Father, we come into your presence and acknowledge we all have needs. If there's unconfessed sin, I pray right now. You don't need to pray what I'm praying. You just talk to him. Confess your sin to him. He's faithful. He's just. He'll cleanse you right now in this moment. I'm going to pray that we wouldn't overlook that as a cause of even some of the suffering, whether it's relational suffering or physical suffering. We're so quick to see other people's sin. Sometimes we miss checking our own heart the pain that we cause each other. Forgive us. Restore us. We know you're the God of restoration. There are people here that are struggling physically, losing eyesight, uh, dementia taking place, arthritis, maybe amputees, lots of things. Pain I wouldn't even be able to guess and know, but we know that you've healed every kind of disease and every sickness, and we ask that you do that here today. I pray you do something that would grow our faith as a church, that would grow that person's faith, that would point people that may never otherwise be interested in the gospel to you. Will you use a sign that you do today as a pointer? We trust you. We ask you to do what we could never do. When you command that man in that passage, he, you don't think he hadn't thought about trying to walk. But when you command something, you make it happen. I pray your word would speak over people today and that you would heal. I pray you'd heal marriages. I pray you'd heal mental illness. I pray you'd heal physical illness. I pray you would do the miraculous in our midst in this very moment at this time right now that you would do a miracle not just 2,000 years ago, but there are people here that need you to move. They need you to do something. And we trust and we believe that you can, and we ask that you would. It's in Jesus' name I pray.